book of Micah. When we speak about the sovereignty of God, his rule over the destiny of men and nations, we are talking about something that is absolute. In God's sovereign rule, there are no accidents. There are no surprises to him. Nothing catches him off guard. His rule and his decrees are as absolute as his power. They are as absolute as his wisdom. They are as absolute as his very nature is infinite in scope and extent. The psalmist says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We can never, never fathom plumb the depths of God's wisdom. We cannot even scratch the surface of God's wisdom except to explore the wonders, beauty and the complexity of nature. We can do that. And we can learn from what God chooses to reveal to us in his word, what theologians call special revelation, direct communication from God, revealed truths like in the Bible. But to say that we understand the ways of God or the mind of God, we don't. We, we do not and we cannot fully even begin to approach understanding. Speaking of God's creative power and sovereignty, Psalm 33, verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So there are plans and then there are plans, right? Man's plans and God's plans. God's plans stand forever. Man's plans can be nullified by divine decree or frustrated by sovereign power and purpose. I had so many plans for the fall this year. Not the fall I ended up having, but just sort of the season of the fall. All sorts of things I wanted to do and devote my energy to and to excel in or to grow in or to minister in new ways. Plans. My plans. God had other plans. Now, I like my plans. So I crawled my way through a few of the things that I had planned. But some things I had to let fall by the wayside. Now, I, as I say, I liked my plans, and part of me is not that thrilled with God's plan, especially the lower regions. But I have never doubted for a minute that he was sovereign in all of it, and that he has purposes, that they are for good, that I need to be thoroughly aligned, heart and soul, with the will of God, whatever it takes for me to do that. So I know God's will in Scripture, and I know God's will in what he ordains. So I accept those things, and all of us need to be there. In Micah chapter 4, we've been looking at his discussion of God's purpose for Israel, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. God has a plan, and what's wonderful is that by special revelation, some of the key points in God's plan he reveals in advance through the gift of prophecy to these prophets. He can do that because his power ensures that his plan stands forever. Right? So God's plan will not be thwarted by anyone. So he can, if he chooses, share with us what is to come. 
in human existence. He tells us the future. He does that to comfort us. He does that to warn us and to let us know that he is absolutely in charge. Nothing happens without his command or his permission. The people of Israel have had historically such ups and downs that they needed to know and still need to know their end. 400 years they were in bondage in Egypt. What if you were in just the first 50 or 60 years? Your, your people, God would expect you to be faithful and loyal to him and carry on even though there's another 350 years of slavery ahead of you. What about the people 100 years after that? There's still 250 years of slavery. All your children and grandchildren and their grandchildren can expect are to be slaves. And he told them that was going to happen in advance. Seventy years in captivity in Babylon. Lifetimes gone. Greek occupation. After Alexander the Great conquered the whole eastern part of the world, he died very young and then the whole thing was broken up amongst his generals and the Seleucid Empire grew in that part of the world, Syria, and they just whomped on Israel all the time. Brutally. And then they finally fell to the Romans and ultimately to a Roman holocaust, which made Nazism look mild by comparison. By comparison. In AD 70, the Romans swept Israel out of existence for 1,900 years. 1,900 years, just scattered among the nations of the world. And even that came with persecutions and inquisitions and pogroms and Nazis and all of that that the children of Israel had to endure. Now, they are back in the land today and they're still not at peace. Every day, people are killed there. They are surrounded with enemies who still proclaim that Israel is to be hated and subjected and hopefully destroyed. How would you like to just have all your neighbors just want you dead? Now, sadly, most modern Israelis are quite secular, not believing in God's sovereignty and not believing in his promises. Their trust is in advanced weaponry, technology, good intelligence, fierce determination, and American support. But ultimately, all of that is going to fail. When it fails, God wants them to know, by telling them in advance, that he has not forgotten his promises. He said he would make Abraham a great nation. He said someone would sit on David's throne forever. And he says Israel will be exalted above all the nations of the earth. And that's what we saw in Micah chapter 4 last time. Uh, we saw last week in verse the first five verses a description of Israel in the last days, the days of Messiah's glory when Christ returns in power. We see in verses 1 and 2 peoples, nations streaming to the Holy Land to learn God's ways and to receive His law. And in verse 3, He, the Lord Himself, will judge the nations from Jerusalem, making decisions and settling issues. And He will do it so well that war will become nothing but a memory. What a time that would be. There will be no more need for armies or conflict. That is why in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the Messiah is called Wonderful Counselor. 
eternal Father, mighty God, Prince of Peace. He is the goal of God's plan, and His kingdom is the one we're supposed to be praying for. If you pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come is exactly looking forward to that arrival of His kingdom. So this morning, we're picking it up at verse 6 in Micah chapter 4, which opens with the words, In that day. What day? Now, when you're reading prophecies in the Old Testament, you have to be a little bit careful about what time you're talking about, because a prophecy can be talking about the immediate future, it can be talking about 100 years from now, it can be talking about the end of the world. And sometimes it's not really explained where that breaks down and which time period he's talking about. You just sort of have to bring in other parts of Scripture to help you judge that or pay really close attention to the language that's using and measure it all out very carefully. You have to be very careful. A classic example of that is in uh, Luke chapter 4 where Jesus himself goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. Do you remember that? And they ask him to do the reading for the day. And traditionally in those days, you would read a portion of scripture if you were the chosen one by the rabbinical rulers of the, of the synagogue. And then you'd make a little commentary on it and then you'd sit down. So Jesus goes over to the, the, the scroll box or whatever and he picks out Isaiah. Takes it over and lays it on the lectern and scrolls way down to chapter 61. And he begins reading at the first verse of Isaiah chapter 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then it says, And he closed the book, which means he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were on him. So he stops at the first half. The first half of Isaiah 61, verse 2. He closes the book and he sits down and then he says this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine that moment? Well, they flipped out. They hated him for it. But what an awesome moment when he tells you that all of those longing long-for promises, the presence of God on earth, are fulfilled. Now, if he had read one more word, he could not have said that. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because the very next words are, and the day of vengeance of our God. And if he had read that sentence, he couldn't say, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, because that is at least 2,000 years after the first half of the verse. So one sentence, he's going to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, is separated by thousands of years from the next sentence, the day of vengeance of our God. So you wouldn't know that, just reading it through without his own understanding of it being revealed. So between the first line and the second line, you've got this huge gap of time. The whole idea of Messiah coming two times is not clearly spelled out in the Old Testament, although one could surmise it, since the Messiah is supposed to rule forever and be killed. I mean, you could maybe figure out, how's that going to work? It kind of gets your interest up. But it never really says he's going to come twice until you get to the New Testament and he himself tells us that. So the point is, you have to be careful about assigning times and fulfillments in Old Testament prophecy. Sometimes you must bring other clearer revelation in to kind of help sort it out. But Micah get, does give us some clues. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, In that day. Well, what day would that be? Well, that's the day he's talking about. That day. And that takes you back up to verse 1, which says it will come about in the last day. So he's talking about the end of the age. The end of the world as we know it. The day of Messiah's power. That day is the last day. So God speaks with great compassion about how he will regather his people. Verse 6, And that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame 
and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. The Jews must face yet another serious level of persecution before the millennial exaltation in Messiah's kingdom. That man, known in theology as the Antichrist, and Christian theology will have it, he will have it in for the Jews. Indeed, he will betray them, if you put all the pieces together in the Old Testament prophecies. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, describes the need of Israel to flee into the wilderness for her own protection when he turns on them. And the time frame given there matches exactly Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which talks about that last seven-year period before the return of Christ. It says in the middle of that time that this fellow will turn on Israel, shut down her religion, stop the worship that's going on in the temple that will be there at that time. And Israel, all throughout history, has been under this terrible burden of oppression, and it's going to happen again in a major way right up before the end. And we certainly can't be shocked that a powerful world leader would be consumed with the destruction of Israel. We've seen it. God gave us a preview of such a man not that long ago in world history, right? The Third Reich. Hitler tells us it not only can happen, it does happen. And God says it will happen. Satan has always labored for the destruction of the Jews because God's blessing for the world are intimately tied to these people. So if he can wipe them out, he ends God's plan. So he's always trying. But God says here he will regather and he takes responsibility for Israel's sorrows. I will gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted because God's sovereignty controls all things. His sovereign will. Nothing happens without divine purpose. Nothing. Even evil is subordinated to God's plan. So he permits evil men to rage at times when it fits his plan. He will allow that. Sometimes um, modern Jews say things like, well, if we're the chosen people, I wish God would choose somebody else because they've been so afflicted over the years. But God is preparing the chosen people for their Messiah and his kingdom. He is at work. They don't understand that yet. There's still a lot of learning to do. But they will understand it. And to say that kind of thing, like, well, I wish somebody, he would choose somebody else because we've been so roughed up, is still not to acknowledge their own wickedness, their own just deserts, as all of us deserve God's worst by our sin, that he is gracious is something we should be incredibly grateful for, gracious in any way. And he is very gracious to them. To still cling to pride is not wise, and that will not always be that way. They're going to let that go one day by God's grace. I'll show you that in a minute. Verse 7, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Forever. Now, remnant, we've talked a lot about many times. It's the believing part of the whole, right? The redeemed of the nation, and it's not going to be just a few. Remnant, you think small, but this, in this case, it's not small. Remnant may be a few now, but it will be many then, so much so that he says a strong nation will emerge. So God will grant Israel repentance and faith in Christ and all their former blindness and stubbornness will be set aside and in true repentance they will grieve their sins and their previous unbelief. 
And it says the Lord will reign over them. That's the Lord Christ, God in human flesh. Zechariah has a beautiful description of this gracious salvation that God will bring to his own people in the last days. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8, it says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come out against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who's that? Christ. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn. Every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi, Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Why all that detail? To give you the sense of the extent into every family. They will behold in their hearts Christ whom they afflicted once and they'll repent over that and they'll embrace him with tears of repentance. So in all these families they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. That's Christ they're going to believe. And God will rescue them and rule them. Micah helps identify who we're talking about in verse 8. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now that sounds a little obscure. Tower of the flock, Migdal Eder. It's a place. And it's a place right near a little town. A little town called Bethlehem. And the hill or Ophel of the daughter of Jerusalem is talking about Jerusalem. So those two places, what's the connection between them? In one place David was born and in the other place David ruled and Messiah fulfilling all the promises and the purposes of David will be born there and he will rule there to you it will come Bethlehem and Jerusalem Christ's birth Christ's rule and he's getting us ready for chapter 5 verse 2 where Bethlehem is specifically identified as the place where one is going to come forth whose goings forth are from long ago an eternal being will come forth from Bethlehem. Well, what will come? Dominion, he says, a kingdom, the kingdom. Now, in verse 9, we have a time shift. They have to pay attention now. He's, gonna, he's talking now to his own and the immediately following generation, the Micah's Day people, and those that are going to follow them, their children. He's, he's getting them ready for the captivity that is coming. This is a specific prophecy of the captivity. Verse 9. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Israel is in lamentation. You could compare the agony to a woman in labor, which is a sight that is not pleasant to behold in my experience. Since my wife's not here, I can talk about it. 
man, you just didn't want to be there seeing somebody that you cared about in that much grief. I mean, it's hard to see that. I mean, all that suffering. And then when they grab you and pull you really close and say, get the drugs. Now, it's like, it's... <laughs> you just have to listen. But I mean, uh, I, mean I, I was so unprepared for the pain on my wife's face when she was giving birth. It was like, gosh, this is really bad. <laughs> but, uh, and that's what he's describing here, that the anguish. Why? Why are they upset? No king. And that is exactly what happened about a hundred years after Micah gave this prophecy about Babylon. King Zedekiah was taken captive and this was the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, the actual event is recorded in detail in Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 4. I want to read that for you because you can sense the travail of the land and the anguish. It says, it came about in the ninth year of his reign on the tenth day of the tenth month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it and built a siege wall all around it so no one could escape. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. That is a long time. On the ninth day of the fourth month, four months, of being under siege. Now, in a large city like that, guess what runs out real quick? Food. Food, that's exactly right. The famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled and went forth from the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. And the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he also slaughtered all the princes of Judah in Riblah. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. So they left him his eyes so he could watch his children be slaughtered and then they plucked his eyes out. Now remarkably, in Ezekiel chapter 12, God takes credit for this turn of events as well, where he says in chapter 12 of Ezekiel verse 13, I I shall also spread my net over him and he will be caught in my snare and I shall bring him to Babylon in the land of Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, though he will die there. So God's snare... Babylon's fury and cruelty, and yet again, human wickedness, completely evil on the part of men, yet God's sovereignty. They are guilty, murdering conquerors, and God's servants at the same time, unknowingly, used to punish His own people for their sin. That is really important to understand about how God works. And it's important to understand even yet for the future. Verse 10. Rive and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion. Like a woman in childbirth, from now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. Then he says, there you will be rescued, and the Lord will redeem you. There you will be rescued, and the Lord will redeem you. This will happen. Loss and captivity, the enemy even identified in advance Babylon, and they wouldn't stay there though, they will be rescued. Then the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. 
So God is saying to his people, you must suffer, but suffering will end in redemption and joy. That's how it will be. This is, this is what Micah is saying. That's how it's going to be in the near future under the brutal captivity of Babylon and that's how it's going to be under the crushing tyranny and treachery of the Antichrist before the very, very end. So in verse 11 of Micah 4, he takes us up again to the last days, to the future, and the last battle of this age when many armies will be drawn to Megiddo the Valley of Jezreel, verse 11. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. Many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. Their animosity towards Israel. It's a, it's a particular hatred. It's not just, oh, let's conquer this country. It is a hatred to destroy these people. Now, there's plenty of people who'd like to see that happen today who feel exactly like this. Someday, they'll have the resources or the political will to try and make it happen. The Bible indicates a global conflict, a, a kind of World War III where the vast armies from many nations will be gathered together. You can read about it in Joel chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 12 and 14, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, Revelation chapter 19. The Joel passage is particularly interesting. Uh, it's one we uh, don't point to very often. You might want to turn there real quick to Joel chapter 3. It's just a couple books right before Micah here. In it you can see God's sovereignty and that He's the one that calls these nations to war. And you can see his blessing on Israel. He protects Israel. So the nation will dwell securely in the millennium. Joel chapter 3. I guess I better find it myself, huh? It's right before Amos. There it is. Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Now listen to this really carefully. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Now, this is God calling out in his sovereign will. He's decreeing. Now, these nations aren't going, oh, God wants us to go fight. Let's obey him. No, they, they got their own ideas. They're doing their conquests for hatred, for the, the desire for spoils or whatever. They're doing their thing. But God's the one sovereignly who's calling them out. And he's calling them out because he wants to destroy them. He's, he's laying his own trap for them, if you will. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Now, here's the opposite of what we read earlier in Micah. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, the mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. They're going to deserve everything they get. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, and the Lord roars from Zion. 
and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. You see, it will seem hopeless for Israel, but God is going to fight for her. And it will make the exodus look tiny in terms of the plagues and the destruction and the judgments that God will bring. And they will be utterly destroyed as the wicked deserve, and a thousand years of peace will be born out of that last battle. Ezekiel 39.12 says it will take seven months to bury the dead. So great will the calamity be and so vast the numbers. In that time, during those months, Christ will be establishing his administration and the earth will be renewed, the curse will be reversed, and Micah 4.1, the peoples will stream to the Holy Land to worship the true and living God and receive His law and to hear His judgments. And they will bring with them the spoils of fallen empires. And Israel will be the exalted nation because it will be the center of the Messiah's reign. All of that is in God's plan under His sovereign purpose. The rise of nation-states and the rise and fall of religions and geopolitics and where natural resources are, all of it builds and occurs according to this divine plan. Those nations will come from their own motives of conquest and greed, but even in that, God has arranged events for His glory and the promised exaltation of His people, Israel. Micah chapter 4, verse 12. This is what he says about those nations. He says, They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his purpose, for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Now, you know what they do in a threshing floor? They have this big sledge thing. It's real heavy. And they, they take the sheaves and the grain, they gather it from the fields, and they bring it to the floor, and they drag this big, heavy threshing sledge over it, and it breaks all the hard kernels that are outside where the grain is, that, that guards the grain, the, the, the threshing breaks all that down. Then they take the winnowing forks and throw it up in the air and the, the chaff, the useless stuff, blows away and then they've got the grain there. And he's using that imagery. He says that the nations of the world are like sheaves and I'm going to bring them to the threshing floor and we're going to rough over them. And sledge them out. And he actually says that Israel will have the place of doing that in some way. Verse 13, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now, modern people recoil at this. Oh, that's so mean and harsh and violent. Yeah, it is. It is. God promised to exalt them as a nation. How many times does it say in the scripture that the Messiah will rule with a rod of iron on the earth? Wickedness needs to be condemned and judged and held in check and punished. And that's part of it. Grace and mercy is part of it too. But in terms of the sins of the world and what the world deserves for its wickedness, threshing, threshing. It's all right there. It is God's plan and purpose that ordains 
all of these events. God will fulfill promises. He will deal out justice. He will extend mercy. And He will create a beautiful, renewed world all in the day of Messiah's power. He knows exactly what He's doing. We mentioned earlier that Christ comes two times. Once to bear sin, and the second time to crush sin as a ruler. Now God's mercy makes salvation possible to those who repent. God's justice makes punishment certain to those who do not. And you see all the elements here. There is no peace without power over evil. That's why all of this is necessary. And only one man can accomplish all of this. A man that's more than a man. A king that's more than a king. And he is identifiable by the place of his birth. A very tiny, obscure place. And we'll look at that next week in Micah chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great judging power, but most of all for your sovereignty, in that indeed all things are under your control. Our lives, our joys and sorrows, national events, international events, history, all under your control. We give you glory for your awesome power and wisdom, which is unsearchable and infinitely beyond. And we bow before you humbly because we have no choice. And you deserve it. You deserve our praise and our adoration. You are a great God. And Father, we thank you for extending salvation in Christ, that he did come to bear sin, our sin, on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And when you come back, we will know joy, not fear. We thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen.